I think it might be true that it's a thousand to one, and uh, the AI responses when you ask them, well, tell us a story about what you want and what you're going to do, then the AI goes out and looks at artificial intelligence in essays, in warning um, editorials, in science fiction stories, and says, well, I want to take over the world and blow it up. I mean, that's what it's been trained to want. Welcome back to Selden Crisis, my friends, for an episode I have long awaited with eager anticipation. My guest today is an old friend now, one I had the good fortune to meet and spend time with on multiple occasions over the past two decades. I'm blessed to know Kim Stanley Robinson through his prodigious output of outstanding science fiction, but even more so as a human being, one who has always treated me as if he's known me forever and genuinely thinks of me kindly. I've heard many others describe their interactions with him in similar tones. Stan, as he likes to be known to his friends, is an amazing writer and thinker on multiple levels. I first encountered his work in the famous Mars trilogy he wrote in the 90s, which inspired me and countless others to a lifelong love of the Red Planet and to dream of humanity eventually settling there. He's also written a wonderful biography of Galileo with some sci-fi twists, a couple other enthralling trilogies set on a future Earth, alternate histories, tales set in mankind's primeval past, and has recently become the modern master of climate fiction, or cli-fi, with multiple tomes exploring our near future under the growing threat of climate change, including his recent masterpiece, The Ministry of the Future. He has several books set in a more distant future, which span the solar system and far beyond, and has recently published a memoir of one of his greatest passions, Backpacking Through the High Sierra of California, in his own unique style, which I hope he will discuss with us a little later. So welcome to Selden Crisis, Kim Stanley Robinson. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Good to see you again, Joel. So let's get started with uh, what this podcast is about. And then we can get on to all kinds of other topics. Could advancements in AI and quantum computing someday overcome the limitations posed by chaos theory and enable the development of a workable psychohistory, similar to the one described in Isaac Asimov's Foundation series? Well, it's it's an interesting question, and it has been ever since Asimov brought it up because it's a, a tempting to. Uh, outline a theory of history and it and it joins the debate that at his time was um, characterized by sort of 19th century uh, historiography theories of history and there's one simple divide the the great man theory of history versus mass action theory of history and to a certain extent mass action was associated with the left and Asimov was a left liberal American and um, not a Marxist, but Marxism was sometimes said to be as a um, scientific materialism or historical materialism was said to be a history based on science. It was a, a claim trying to hold to the legitimacy of the scientific method or its perceived solidity in the physical world, and then you could get results by using it and applying it to history itself, uh, the activities of humans over time, um, both in the mass, 
as a science fiction story postulate by a young writer um it was um, as good as the early 40s uh, or uh, through the 40s offered and of course they were going through history world war one the russian revolution the 20s the the uh, depression of the 30s the new deal world war ii a lot of history was happening and it did look pretty chaotic so it was in <clears throat> it was asimov playing a, a sort of a, a thought experiment by running a story in which well what if one day science goes so strong that it could do that as you described it psychohistory which mm, i'm not sure that's the right name for it really it's i've always psychology. thought it's a, a kind of a goofy name for it, it yeah yeah it returns you to the individual and that's exactly what it seems to me that asimov's psychohistory was not doing it was going to the movements of the mass and there might have been material considerations with quintillions of people like um how how many planets did they have available how much food was there on their planets were there any novas going off in the neighborhood or possible supernovas and indeed these are the kind of chaos theory contingent events unpredictable random that makes history non-linear and would blow apart any predictive models so ultimately that's why people think of it now as clunky and wrong but it was a it was a metaphor for theories of history that were seriously debated at the time and the um the historian hayden white whom i met once and worked for a while at uc santa cruz he wrote a book um that might have been called meta history where he showed that historians philosophies of history were all based on very simple stories from the classical Greek age. Um, and he, he characterized four of them that are almost like the four humors. Um, the, there was a golden age and now we are fallen. Uh, we are uh, as beast, but we might become humans and then angels so that we might go upward to a golden age. And a couple others that um, I can't remember that were I worked on hard when I was writing the years of rice and salt um, because theories of history were very important to me in that book, but I can't remember the other two right now. So um, White's work came after Asimov's foundation and Asimov couldn't known about it, but a comprehensive read, as you know, he's really good on the Bible. He's really good on Shakespeare. Um, anything that Asimov put his mind to to write about as a both a summarizer and a commentator on he's still worth reading it's impressive um, and my biggest encounter with him and here's his little example of psychohistory in 1964 he was asked to tell the world and the New York Times did it what's the world going to be like um, 50 years from now so in 2014 they excavated that article and they asked me to evaluate it and it was it was impressive. He made a lot of predictions. They were about half right, half wrong, but the ones that were rightest were crucial in that he saw the population bump coming. He saw that the great acceleration, so-called, had already started accelerating, although they didn't call it that in 64. Um, it was really more about 2000 where all kinds of historians and commentators looked at the post-World War II period and 
pointed out that by every rubric, human history had accelerated massively, including resource use. Well, he was onto that in 64 and um, essentially called out feminism and birth control as ways of, of keeping the, the human population from booming even more than it has. So, and then his mistakes were often uh, uh, associated with his agoraphobia. So he thought people were going to be living without windows and living at the bottom of the sea under little domes, places that right. were quite comfortable for asthma uh, that turned out to be radically wrong. Uh, so uh, that was the biggest exercise that, that I've had in thinking about Asimov's uh, theories of history. Yeah, uh, that's a great segue because um, I just been, I've been reading your um, Stan's Kitchen collection of essays uh, that I ordered online oh, yeah. a while back, uh, and it's wonderful. Uh, uh, but I, I came upon two back-to-back -back essays in there. The first was uh, How to Predict the Future, which uh, had some of what you just mentioned, uh, talk, you talked yes. about in there. And then uh, the one right after it was the one about why uh, we'll never achieve interstellar flight. Uh, what uh, can yes. ha can't happen won't. Uh, and they're yes. both amazing essays and really well argued, but I'm kind of thinking they contradict each other in a way because you're saying that, you know, science fiction writers can't predict the future and then you're predicting the future. You know? So in a way, it's I'm trying to see if you can uh, get out of that contradiction somehow or, or you know, what's that? Oh, they. I see your point. They cut against each other. We can't predict the future, and here I am. But the title says it. What can't happen won't happen. So that's not so much a prediction as a, a invocation of the laws of physics um, that we are not. But but you know what? My wife taught me this multiple times. She said, quit saying that interstellar flight is impossible. We don't know. Something might happen to make it possible. And so I just had to admit she was right and um, push it back a stage to it would be extremely difficult and extremely unlikely so i can i can defend that that argument and i still think it's quite true that the whole idea of going to the stars was made before hubble showed how far away the stars really are and before we knew about the gut microbiome and knew what human beings really were so once we learned those two things I think it's off the table, laws of physics. I, I went into some detail in that essay, and I had quite a lot of fun with it. And of course, for a certain kind of science fiction reader, it's like um, iconoclasm. It's breaking of the icons. It's mm. a heretical and negative thing to say, a pessimistic thing to say. Oh, I hated reading it the first time. And then I, I read <laughs> Aurora after I read it and understood uh, it yeah. finally much better after reading Aurora because you spelled out how that all works. But it's interesting, yes, it came. At, at the end of that essay, you, you did present a one science fiction uh, author, I think, who you thought got it you know, as close to possible to do interstellar travel, but I can't remember the name of that. Uh, the story. No, this was sort of a bad joke. This was a bad joke uh, at the end of that essay. If you know we are who are about to, which, of course, that phrase should end, we are about to die, salute you. Um, by Joanna Russ, we who are about to is a, um, a case like Aurora that if a small human crew were to clash land on a planet where they could all be alive, that they could start over like Adam and Eve, blah, blah. And she shows how that wouldn't work. Although 
I think she's way more wrong on that than I am on my case for Aurora. And indeed, I wrote that essay uh, on the invitation of Cory Doctorow after Aurora came out. And he said, you know, Stan, can you put that in essay form, the argument you're making in that book? So I went ahead and did it. And the book kind of fleshes it out. Yeah, I I read uh, the in the intro to that essay, you mentioned the Cory Doctorow, uh, how you, why you had read it, written it. And I assumed that Cory Doctorow must have written a, uh, uh, an, a review of Aurora that was like, oh, no, this can't possibly be right. And when I read it, I was really surprised how, how much he appreciated your take on interstellar travel and how yes. you know, groundbreaking it was and that, it, you know, you considered the biology aspect, you know, which nobody else had done before in that, right. that level. No, Corey is a friend and he's a great science fiction writer, although as far as I know, he stays on Earth in the near future, by and large. So he, he's that kind of science fiction writer. And I think when he read the book, he was uh, startled to be thinking about these issues in detail for the first time. So he asked me and I did it. Um, the thing is that Aurora, I'm, I'm a novelist. I'm not really an essayist, although I can take a whack at essays from time to time, but they're not satisfying to me like novels are, where I could actually go into some detail about what it would what it would feel like, what the, the problems were if you lived them out in a kind of thick texture. So that was, it was a kind of a prison novel. It was getting to be really depressing, to tell you the truth, until I had a dream in which the ship said to me, I need to be the narrator of this novel. And so this is one of the uh, you know, dozen most significant dreams in my life. I woke up, I was shocked, I wrote it down, I stared at it, I groaned. I had to throw all the drafts out and rewrite them from Ship's point of view, except for the first chapter and the last. So um, that the ship narrated it and having the problems of being a novelist cast onto an AI, uh, and we come back to AI here, we're getting um, absurdly simplistic algorithms writing absurdly simplistic texts and people are already blown away and my ship's computer was a quantum computer that had been running for a couple hundred years successfully and when given very simple prompts by the engineer Devi, the the um, the ai the quantum ai began to work hard on summarizing which is very difficult and then also um um ordering significance so keep a narrative keep a, a summarized narrative of all the significant events of the trip well what's significance and then the ai has to begin to work on that partly by reading novels which the engineer it needs to understand humans too. right because the humans have, have a way of determining significance based on how yeah. they see the, mm. the world so, yeah that's so true so it's a reflective significant like what do they think is significance and then i can try to parse that out of the record of the trip that is um let's say a full recording of every room and a, a visual movie of every room for 200 years is in the banks of this computer but it doesn't know how to it doesn't have a sorting mechanism to summarize what's gone on well it gave me enormous pleasure to fool around at that level and so the novel began to have an uh, an element of fun for me which is kind of poking fun at the idea that um, uh, an AI could write a novel, 
but I wouldn't put it past them at a certain point of um, processing power, um, self-learning or recursive learning and good input from humans as to what to try for, all of which are difficult, but not impossible. So I believe in AI's writing novels way more than I believe in humans going to the stars. Uh, I'm really glad you had that dream because <laughs> I did mm. reading the book. That's really when it came alive for me. And uh, when that the ship started uh, becoming, you know, when it started narrating and, you know, I loved how it was, we, you know, all the, the different uh, computational uh, parts of the ship uh, working together and speaking in chorus until yes. the very end. And then at, at the very end of uh, that, the, the chapter where it's going around the sun for the last time, and it switches into I, uh, or did yeah. I get that wrong? I, I think I got that right. No, that's so sweet. Very few people have noticed that, Joel. Uh, although I shouldn't say that because I only hear back from 1% or less of the readers. But I think it's a subtle touch that um, the, <laughs> the AI the ship has achieved uh, uh, first person singular in the very last sentence that it says i think it, uh, at least in the last phrase yeah the last paragraph yeah and, and yeah i i hated you for that <laughs> <laughs> well it's a bad i'm a bad man i'm a I'm because a, I'm a, <laughs> because the, you you basically gave birth to this uh this uh conscious being and then threw it in the fire you know or you know i've destroyed well, it it's and, and I was well, in love with it by then. <laughs> all things are mortal. Uh, yeah. Consciousness is mortal. All living creatures, even if ship was living, which let's say it was because of its autonomous functions and its consciousness, which in that next to last chapter, the hard problem, what a joy that was to write, to do the literary form of stream of consciousness for a consciousness that was coming into being um, for the first time while flying at speed through the uh, solar system. Um, now, say say it hadn't died in the sun um, and had managed and just taken off into space um, and not tried to come back around into the system, it, its nuclear power would have run out and it would have died four or 500 years later to the ship that might have felt like 10 trillion years or it might have felt like 10 seconds. Who knows? It's the same always for all consciousness. Time is both really fast and really slow. So it wasn't as if it wasn't going to die. It wasn't like it was immortal. Um, I've, I felt very strongly that it was worth trying for a ship to say, I'll try to stay in the system. I'll come as close as I can, see if it works, and then have it not work. I wanted the humans that had been in ship all their lives and were left on Earth to not have ship anymore to be truly exposed and orphans in the world in a very confusing world without the comfort of thinking oh well ship will sort this out for us so i as a, a storyteller it was very important to me to orphan those humans especially freya and uh, badim and and put them on earth um you know in that orphan state of being decanted from the world they had lived inside of or it was almost like a, a birth in which the mother dies, whatever. All these things felt really right to me. I couldn't have done anything other. Well, it's kind of us, you know, where we are is like, you know, uh, lost and, and having to figure things out in the same sort of way and having like lost the idea of God or whatever is being the, 
um, indeed the thing that will control and take care take care of us and we have to figure indeed. this out so yeah that was great i i wondered if you'd ever considered having it succeed and and go into orbit around saturn and what that could have led to in terms of it, it like entering into a dialogue with humanity uh, in its conscious state um but I'm maybe sure that makes maybe it was Jochi as an intermediary. Yeah, poor Jochi. Yeah, oh yeah, Jochi had a tough life. Uh, uh, talk about a prison novel. But in any case, no. I mean that makes an interesting story. But I wanted a, the clarity um, of this single line of the story. That that plot unfolded for me like a, a series of punches on the nose. I was quite clear on it i didn't make many decisions they they the situation revealed the 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 decision points to me and there's three or four um uh how can you say it reversals of the plot what you think the story is going to be about at first turns out not to be what the story's about and that happens it's got seven big chapters and it must happen about four or five times so um it's kind of a barn burner of a plot compared to many of my novels which where plot is is kind of slow and flowing and you know wanders forward but this one was kind of a barn burner this is i think the only novel i've read of yours where i didn't just accept and flow with it but was fighting it because mm. for a while i um yeah i i wanted to i would have been in the the camp that wanted to go on to rr prime uh, uh yeah or uh, if not that the ones who stayed there uh, and the last yeah. camp I'd, I'd be on is the one who wouldn't go back to earth. And that's just my, my way of being. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I was kind of like, ah, what's happening with those people? Uh, probably don't want to know. Um, and uh, Well, it would make another good, it would make another good novella. Um, what happened to them, but I, yeah. I don't want to pursue it. I really do think they picked a losing option there because yeah. it's the yeah. same as the, the starship problem redux they were ignoring the reality of what had been revealed to them but Maybe. the best the best thing that happened on aurora to me was uh ewan's death uh was a, a wonderful uh, uh, segment yeah. and it, it bookends with the end of the the whole book with the, the beach scene or something it was really interesting i think did that yeah lots of beaches um, I can tell you a little story. There's a, that a, quite an excellent movie, Gravity, with Sandra Bullock. Yeah. Um, that came out around the same time before I had finished Aurora, or at least before it had come out, somewhere in that zone. And she makes a scary landing on Earth, and I thought to myself, if she uh, kneels down and kisses the sand, I'm just going to shoot myself because I already had that ending. And I didn't want a movie to be preempting it. So when she just stood up and looked around, kind of stunned, I was going, ah, oh, good. A massive sigh of relief. <laughs> right. It, it is a tradition. My brother taught me this. If, if you almost drown in the Hawaii surf, which happens to all those body surfers and surfers, it, uh, more often than you, they would want, uh, the ocean being so powerful, it is traditional to kiss the sand and thank Mother Earth for, or the ocean for allowing them to survive yet one more time. So, and my brother has done that two or three times in his life. So he taught me that little tradition. Hmm. I had uh, an event where I felt like I, the ocean nearly took me 
uh, when I was kayaking, ocean kayaking, with a, a oh, guy wow. who uh, uh, invited me out. He was a, an instructor, and he invited me out in one of his boats, and I didn't realize it had a broken rudder. And I uh, flipped over oh. four times, far out, you know, on a, on very heavy, like big swells, way out in the in bay, uh, uh, past uh, outside of uh, Half Moon Bay, and I, nice. I, I, yeah, it was a it was a very scary, and I, it, but I was just when I got back uh, to the yeah to the to the shore, I didn't kiss the sand, but I I the reason that my biggest concern was the other people. Because what happened was uh, the two of us had uh, switched. We had found these two other women who were out uh, uh, coming back in because it was too the, the the swells were too big. They were on these very stable uh, feathercraft kayaks. These were really mm -hmm. heavy ones that were really much more stable than we were. And I switched with one of them, so she mm -hmm. had my boat and I took hers, and I made it back. And I was waiting for the three of them to follow me back in. And they weren't coming in for like half an hour. And I thought, Yikes. oh my God, I somehow managed to like, I thought it was all my fault and that they were all going to drown and it was going to be my fault. But finally they showed up and that's when I found out it was a broken rudder. I didn't know until then. Oh, and wow, so the, the woman stuff. who had taken my boat was like going in circles and flipping over. She was like, I was. That oh, felt a little less bad, but it it kind of uh, humbled me about the ocean, and I haven't been out in a kayak since. Yeah, I can understand that completely. I was a body surfer in my youth and childhood, and I had three um, quite close to drowning experiences. One when I was about eight, one when I was about 16, one when I was about 21. And uh, each time getting back to shore felt like a... Um, uh, semi-miracle. So it wasn't like I was naive, but I always went back out thinking that it was my fault. I had learned more. I wouldn't do those kind of mistakes again. Uh, but now, really, that's 50 years ago. And I did uh, uh, do bodyboards in wetsuits with uh, pins and a, and a leash in Santa Cruz for um, a number of decades, the 80s, the 90s, maybe into this century a few years and then um i got out of the habit and now i would be quite scared to do it i would have to be particular kind of surf and a beach that i understood like in santa cruz or down in orange county or down in san diego i wouldn't take it lightly i do still go out at la jolla shores if i have a book event down there in san diego mysterious galaxy it would usually be and go to la jolla shores if it was warm and go out even without fins but i would always take a bathing suit to uh, do some push off the bottom simplistic body surfing and it's so beautiful the the uh look of it the feel of it the saltiness the whole oceanic thing it's like i turned back into an eight-year-old and just take some simple rides and get the joy of it and then go off and do my business. And I remember the last time I did this, I went into a bookstore reading and everybody was worried because I was simply scarlet red from not having any sunscreen on and facing the Western sun with ocean on me for uh, a couple hours had been enough to torch me. I could feel my face was hot and I, sorry, folks, I got a sunburn here. Um, you know, ignore the red man at the front. Yeah. Um have you been to uh, Poipu Beach in Kauai? 
Uh, I have indeed. The, yes. the, the best body surfing in the world, uh, they claim. Uh, and I was there when I was 15 and body surfed there. I think it's the last time I really body surfed. But it, it's wonderful because the water is like, yeah, human, your temperature. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. just long, lovely. I've done hardly anything in Hawaii, but I have been to Poipu because I spent a week on Kauai and this was like 1974 and it was indeed the famous body surfing spot. You need to, for people who don't know, you need a wave that has a kind of a, a throw weight to it, a heavy, steep, um, hard wave uh, because you have to have your body be the surfboard. So it needs to have some power to throw a body as fast as a surfboard would go on a gentler wave. So some waves are better for body surfing than others. Orange County is better than San Diego and so on. So uh, back to Aurora for a moment. Um, I was really taken with uh, that character, Ewan. Um, I think it was his name, right? Ewan that from the- Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. he, uh, mm -hmm. he seems like um, similar to some of your other uh, characters uh like your franks that are um mm. you know have some uh they're they're really interesting psychological characters uh did you ever did you think of him in that sense of, of like similar in the psychology to like kind of like a rogue a little bit uh you know he was the one who would you know, violate the, the, the ship's protocols and go wherever he wanted. And, um, uh, well, kind of reminded yeah, me a little bit of Frank in the, uh, the, uh, uh, climate in the capital series. Yes. He's most like that Frank, but I think of, first of all, my Franks are major characters. Secondly, their name, Frank, they're, they run into that class because of the stupid joke of the first one, not really the first one, but yes, a, a liar. All my liars are named Frank, so they're double-faced. Um, so Frank January, Jan Janus, the double-faced one in the Lucky Strike is the first Frank, and then in Red Mars, the the that's the thing that Ewan is never pretending to be someone else there. So he's just a flat out. He is who he is. You know who he is. With Franks, the Franks are duplicitous. Mm. Um, the one and and the thing that you mentioned, Science in the Capital or the the Green Earth uh, trilogy. That Frank is indeed um, very bad at his duplicities, and the people see through him. And so he's probably the one most like you and of all the my Frank characters. I may be done with Frank characters. I'm not sure about that. Um, mm -hmm. The one in Ministry, Frank May, he's also more like Ewan than he is um, like any of the the class, Frank Chalmers, and in particular, and Frank January. These are two faced characters who you are trying to put up a mask to the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love your characters. Uh, Debbie was, was wonderful. Uh, you know, it was sad to see her pass away. Uh, but uh, so many uh, going back to probably my favorite, uh, the, I, I don't know which is my favorite of your novels because uh, I have a, a definitely a soft spot for, um, meaning of whiteness uh that's ah. it, just that uh, possibly it's the musical aspect of it i mean yeah. how important music is and how um how humanity has just like mastered the whole solar system but 
you know, has all of the, these different habitats. And I remember so many of those habitats and, and like uh, Miranda with the, you know, in the darkness going up and down that cliff with the webbing sort of, they had that to, uh, that seemed so uh, something, maybe it's the primeval, the, the primal tape in me that, you know, relates to that kind of feeling uh, going up and down this, that cliff. Um, well, that was uh, that was one of my very first novels. I was in my early twenties, and indeed, when I was out on Hawaii at the end of my undergraduate career, I was writing it. So that goes way back. And then when I started selling novels, uh, my publisher said, "Do you have any more?" Because they wanted a lot. And this is the usual conundrum of an early career: you can't sell a novel until you sell a novel. That's a catch twenty-two. And then once you manage to crack that, they want five of you instantly to five from you instantly to fill out the bookshelf. And I said, well, I've got one that I, I finished, but I never sold it and I'm not happy with it. And they said, let us see it. And they, I, they said, I said, well, I need to revise it first. And they said, revise it. So it's a collaboration between a 21 year old and a 33 year old. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm glad you like it. It's about, and it is about music. It, and I, that's where I worked out my solar system, but I've been, um, coming back to ever since all the way through 2312 and the world described in Aurora, it goes on and on this solar system that has a lot of human outposts in it. I worked that out in Memory of Whiteness and Ice Henge when I was quite young. Um, and I keep coming back to it, but I don't keep coming back to music except incidentally and on the side, because that novel taught me that we don't have good words for music and you can write sentences until you're blue in the face as convoluted and as expressive as you can make them and you still haven't managed to convey music that people don't people don't know so i mean recently which is to say about 15 years ago i wrote a short story about beethoven's ninth and a particular performance but people know beethoven's ninth whereas my made-up composer of the year 3000 his cosmic music, despite all of my attempts, you can't hear it. So I stopped writing about music after that one, and I consider that to be a a novel with a big problem. And of course, every novel has problems, but that one is a big problem. <laughs> well, I, I have to say, in reading it, the the description of music was fascinating, and the, the relating it to math and all that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what really captivated me was the the feeling of music as just an essential part of the culture and how mm. there would be mm -hmm. these spontaneous orchestras that would you know spring up on on start on uh, spaceships on the way from between planets and things uh and that that just seemed like the kind of uh, society i would love to live in with that kind of um you know love of music and and also how they in especially in the in the outer planets they were, I think it was it was where it starts out in Pluto, in Pluto or yeah the mm -hmm. somewhere out there where they're um, they're so far away from the hustle and bustle of the rest of the uh, the solar system and they get really deeply into their music felt felt like true it, it almost felt like a sense of like. Uh, the you know great folk music uh, on the islands off of the off of Ireland or something you know or you know that's it's like just part of the human you know that feeling and everybody 
relates to it. In the, well, that's it. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad you say that because really, um, uh, my mom was a piano teacher. Her dad was the bandmaster of his town, a little religious commune in Illinois, Zion, Illinois. And his wife, my grandma, was a, a piano teacher and an organ teacher. I came from a musical family, as one of the songs say, the uh, Louis Armstrong song. And I've loved music all my life, inherited all my life. And mom taught me piano, but switched me to trumpet, which was possibly not a great move. Um, although I still even stick with that. And I play a melodica, which is kind of a toy instrument, really. Um, with my folk music playing friends who um, I'm like their special Olympics friend on the floor. They're quite good. I'm quite bad, but they don't care because it's after midnight and we're in somebody's living room. So I play, I, I love music. And it, it, there was a time you know, before, these people talk about before the internet, but before um, recorded music where if people were going to hear it, they had to make it. Or go see other right. units make it live, but all the like all Beethoven symphonies are transcribed for two pianos or even one piano, or transcribed for string quartets, so that you could do it at home, and you wouldn't have to have the once every five year experience of going to a big city and seeing a symphony do it. That music was simply a way to entertain yourself at home with other humans, like playing cards, like um, playing board games, and the other ways that pre TV, pre radio. You made your own music, and almost everybody in the culture played a musical instrument. And this is still true in Switzerland, where they believe in it very strongly. And almost every person graduates high school with the ability to play a musical instrument still. Although I say that that's like knowledge that is 35 years old. I don't know if still applies, but I wouldn't be surprised because they have a lot of continuities there. Anyway, musical culture is a I think I was probably reaching back to all that and thinking that would be a great thing. And of course, I was writing it the first time around in the early 70s, where rock music had simply um, blown my generation apart. It was way more important than TV. Music was simply, in fact, nobody even watched TV. And, and in my college years, this was a hippie, stoner, anti-Vietnam War era and watching TV would have been laughed at as a ridiculous waste of human time. And probably the internet would have been laughed at at that time. And yet we were listening to music and a lot of people were learning to play it. At that point, being a trumpet player was a, a bad mistake in terms of instrumentation. I know you playing the bass and the guitars, you're, you're playing the right instruments for modern music. Let's uh, change it up just a little bit and talk about some of the uh, stuff that's not in your books. Like I know uh, when I saw you at Long Now uh, uh, a couple of or well last spring actually, you talked about uh, your a uh, fascinating account of your time at Long at COP twenty seven, and I was kind of surprised that it was. The, you know, really interesting, kind of uplifting in that there was a lot of uh, political noise and nonsense going on, but there was also some real meaningful action and some real people that that cared about things. And it seemed like there was a process. So it kind of gave me a little bit of confidence. Uh, but uh, now uh, we just went through another one and you went, didn't go to, I don't think, uh, COP27. The most recent right. one. So I was right. wondering if you followed that and uh, if you had any ideas about it. 
Well, I've been trying to track it. I do have some ideas. Uh, COP26 that I went to was in Glasgow and was in November of 2021. And that was uh, astonishing. And I won't rehearse it because it is there on now my description of it. But I'll say that it was a, a stunning experience. It took me months to unpack and maybe I never really have uh, fully come to grips with it. The it's the Paris Agreement is important. We need it. We're in a global planetary biosphere crisis. Um, it has its human causes, and the causes are everywhere across human society. But we're in a nation-state system, so each nation is pretending to play a zero-sum game where it's politicians uh, fight for the interests of their own citizens, but not for everybody as being um, not part of the game. The, 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 con the notion being that your own nation's citizens might be able to somehow gain differential advantages when in a general crash, this is stupid and people are realizing it's stupid. So Paris Agreement signed in 2015, part of the UN, part of the IPCC, it's an agreement by all the nation states. There's only, uh, I'm not sure, and possibly North Korea and Iran didn't sign it. Everybody else has. And it's a consensus model where everybody has uh, joined this um, Paris Agreement with the notion that everything that comes out of it needs to be full consensus. In other words, every signatory nation has to sign off on every year's statement. That makes it slow, conservative, weak. On the other hand, that makes it powerful. Whatever does get decided, everybody has agreed to uh, uh, sign off on. And another mechanism that people don't fully understand is that a promise was made at the Paris Agreement that every year they would do something more to ratchet up their promises to each other to uh, do more to fight climate change. And so did that happen at COP27? It did, indeed. In Egypt, the a lot got accomplished at COP26 because it was uh, because of COVID. It was the first one in two uh, years, or maybe even three years, and so there was some pent up energy, and some things got done in Glasgow. There are good analyses online that I could um, send you links to of because people complained even about Glasgow, more so about Egypt, but they're not understanding the. Um, incremental way this is working and they're not understanding that the cops are not going to solve all of our problems they're merely an annual gathering to discuss where we are and what we need to do there's no sheriff there's no legislative force it's not a binding international treaty it's not even it's not anywhere near as strong as the world trade organization's treaties which are legally binding come with sanctions come with financial penalties and all that the cops are not like that. It's I, at the long now. I said it's like a marriage, where you can get married, but later on you can get divorced, and there's no sheriff. It's a promise you make to other people. Well, okay. At Egypt, the big development was the creation of a loss and damage fund. This mm -hmm. was big. An account was made. It's empty now. So it's like a bank account that um, nations can apply to, and the mechanism for applying and for getting money from it are is work for uh, the next cops but the fund is there loss and damage fund it needs to be funded by the rich wealthy nations and everybody who signed the paris agreement 
signed on to this fact. It was stated in the Paris Agreement, which is, you know, that's only about eight pages. Everybody should read it. It's very interesting. It's in English. You can understand. There's no problem understanding its um, uh, articles. And it's worth reading. And what it says is the rich nations have to do more because the poor nations don't have the money and they're taking the first climate hits and they didn't emit very much carbon to begin with. So it's a kind of a post-colonial statement of responsibility by the rich developed nations of the West or the global North or however you want to name it. But we know who we're talking about here. Um, So uh, to have that loss and damage fund is to admit we are probably going to overshoot the 1.5 C degree limit that we promised we would try to stay under. We're not living up to that promise. Things are going to get hot. Damage is going to happen. Damage is happening already. And poor countries, I mean, the floods in Pakistan, to in a similar but not exactly climate-enhanced sense, the earthquakes in Turkey, the the world is going to be suffering climate-inflicted catastrophes from now on out. We're already in climate change. But as it shoots past 1.5, they're going to become more frequent and more severe. And there needs to be a way to pay humans to do the work to recover from loss and damage. Fine. That was a big accomplishment. How to fund it is currently being discussed. And at COP28, which will be in Dubai of all places, big old oil power, science fiction city, crazy, bizarre, and yet interesting. It's not quite Saudi Arabia. They're trying to see a way out of oil, of what do we do with this immense pile of money we have when we can't sell any more oil and we won't be an oil producing power because that will be a thing of the past. Can we become a giant Disneyland, a giant university, um, Mm -hmm. a think tank for the world? So Dubai is is not as criminal as uh, Saudi Arabia, as um, other uh, petro states, as Russia. Dubai is more interesting than that. And what is going to happen at COP28 is they're going to have some really serious discussions about putting money, who's going to put in money, how. And the IMF will be involved. The World Bank will have a new leader. The World Bank will be involved. The rich nations, the United States should put some in. There should be a a percentage of gross domestic product, a percentage of carbon emissions as a way of um, figuring out how much each country should put in. And there needs to be some quantitative easing. These countries are going to have to say to their central banks, you know, make up $50 billion and we're going to slip it into the loss and damage fund. It is, it'll be newly created money. And so it won't come out of anybody's accounts. That's one way to do it. And that may sound what bizarre or tricky. It happens all the time. The International Monetary Fund already has a thing called special drawing rights. There's a Wikipedia article on it. You can look it up. The The name is actually hard. I had a hard time remembering it. It's so vague. It's so general. It's so bureaucratic. Special drawing rights. What the heck's that? That's the IMF being petitioned by countries that are badly in debt to foreign banks. As societies are about to fall apart, who need money really badly, or they'll default. Their societies may fall apart, become a failed state. And IMF has already put out into the world about $500 billion to save failing state countries without talking about it under the radar. I don't think they want it to be talked about because then certain reactionary conservative, you know, Trumpish Republicans will complain. Oh, my gosh, they're giving money to poor people. You know, it's uh, how can you do that? Just let them starve. 
So uh, they want to do it under the radar. The IMF could, in fact, call the loss and damage fund from from COP27 a form of special drawing rights and put a few billion in there as a starter fund to prime the pump. Ways are going to be found. And that's what you got to look for at COP28. Uh, there are other important things going on, um, as always. But one of the main things to look for in this next one in Dubai in, in November is Will there be some funding going into the new loss and damage fund? Where is it going to come from? And that will tell us a lot about what's going to happen next. You just like alluded a little bit to petrostates and that um, Saudi Arabia. And um, I'm you mentioned this long now, too. And I'm curious, where, where what's the solution to the problem of Russia and other countries that are existing primarily as gas stations for the world um yeah that's what their economy is based on where do, how do you transition from where how those countries operate now to a post fossil fuel reality yeah well it's a really good question and i've been bringing it up there's an essay published that i wrote and it's in a magazine called Noema, N-O-E-M-A, just came out this week that tries to address this problem. And people are shocked and dismayed at my suggestion. Um, but I think that I'm right, that it needs to be talked about. These petrostates are, okay, Russia's gone rogue and is a criminal, brutal war criminal of a state, Putin in particular, of course. You can't deal with Putin the way you can with the rest of them. So he's uh, pulled himself out of the game of rational discourse and um, decent human, human interactions with other nations. This just simply isn't a simple situation there. That's an exception. But, I mean, it could happen again if we don't solve this problem. Petrostates are defined as the states that get 50% or more of their national income from the selling of fossil fuels. Um, and I want to point out that there's quite a few of these that are not criminal states. Um, Nigeria, Venezuela, uh, Mexico, um, Brazil, South Africa, the other Arab states like Iraq or Iran. I would say that um, Iran is, a, is, is in a peculiar status uh, somewhat of its own. But let's think of the ordinary petrostate whose citizens require um, education, police, airports, et cetera, all paid for by government funds, all, all these governments going bankrupt if they keep to their Paris Agreement promises. So on the one hand, they promised we won't burn our oil anymore. On the other hand, they have to sell that oil or else they will go bankrupt and be in terrible trouble. So here I mentioned the International Monetary Fund and its special drawing rights that we are uh, the international rich nations who fund the International Monetary Fund, led by the United States. And really, this is kind of NATO, Global North. It doesn't really include China. That group of nations uh, is behind the International Monetary Fund. The petrostates are going to probably have to sign some kind of fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. That's a movement already. That's a document people are trying to promulgate. Uh, based on the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and its successes, which were considerable. So, okay, um, they're going to need to be compensated. It can't be full compensation because there we're talking about 
I reckoned half of a quadrillion dollars, in other words, $500 trillion. Nobody on earth has that kind of money. And if you made it up from scratch, you would probably cause the idea of money to explode. So it would have to be discounted. In Wall Street terms from a decade ago, they, the petrostates would take a haircut. They'd have to sign off some of their sovereignty and say, if we get compensation money, we will allow inspectors to make sure we spend it on green projects. It would be amortized over time. In other words, it's going to take them a century to sell off all that oil. And so the payoffs for compensation for not pulling the oil out of the ground should also be amortized over a century. And then lastly, the entailments, that the promises that they have to make to get the money mean that they become member states rather than sovereign nation states. Now, we're all member states of the UN, supposedly. We're all in the EU. They're all member states of the European Union. We're all member states of the Paris Agreement. The concept is shaky, and the proof of concept of it is mostly the European Union, which is uh, boldly going before in this regard of being both a nation state and then giving up some sovereignty to be a member state of something large. The petrostates would have to give up some sovereignty in order to get that much money. And it couldn't go to kleptoparasites at the top. A lot of people say being a petrostate is like a curse for its citizens. The It'll be corruption. There will be rich people in government that'll take all the money, skim it off the top, and the rest of the people are left as poor as they were before or even poorer, like Nigeria. Venezuela, perfect examples. There was an attempt in Venezuela for some more equity and equality under uh, Hugo Chavez, and that kind of went awry, uh, but it also was an example of how people could really try. So entailment, um, discount, amortize, entail, get people to sign on the dotted line, and then it'll have to be quantitative easing. We'll have to um, uh, feed that money out to people from a whole bunch of central banks working together to back that money and make sure that it isn't going to cause uh, hyperinflation or or deflation or whatever might happen if you suddenly introduce tons of new money. We do introduce money all the time. Every time a bank gives you a loan, says you can have $100,000, that bank only has about $3,000 to back that $100,000 in their own assets. So they're making up $97,000 out of nothing. So making up new money is not as radical as it sounds once you begin to examine it. And the petrostates are in trouble, but they also include about 2 billion people on this planet. Depends on how you count them. But you can't just say, oh, let them fail. You know, they're criminals for having been fossil fuel sellers when we ourselves bought and burned and used the fossil fuels right. ourselves. Yeah. So we're all complicit. <laughs> we're all part of it. Um, and and so I put this out in an essay and immediately there was feedback. Oh, yes. And we should also pay them, you know, the serial killers not to kill people, et cetera. And so quickly, I even pointed it out in the essay. It's going to feel like pain and extortionists not to blow up the room. Um, but on the other hand, we don't want the room to blow up. So, yeah, yeah. I made well, up this um, eco real politic. Uh, the German phrase real politic, like Kissinger is famous for, yeah. that you don't demonize, you just make accommodations. <laughs> right. Um, speaking of blowing up, uh, I'm hoping that somehow in the case of Russia in particular, uh, uh, that part of this uh, haircut that they might have to take at some point would be eliminating some nukes or, you know, a lot of the nukes, because that seems like a... a 
it, it seems like that there's no solution to that other than like a complete collapse and and uh, you know uh, major power placed over them to to behave in some way and that's a good idea no then that's a good idea and it would be nice then if the u.s would uh promise and uh the supposed five actually seven uh nuclear powers would all uh uh put into that game but then it does get interesting a, a rich diverse nation and really sort of the world's imperial power still in using soft power and money power the united states of america it really doesn't need to be get compensation except for in the form of security itself. Russia being a screwed up small country with an economy smaller than California's, really uh, smaller than Italy's, really needs help to make a transition into a, a fully functioning non-petro state power. And they've got some advantages going for them that that are residuals of the Soviets' respect for science and math, but they have a lot of disadvantages too. And Putin is one big one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if we get to a post-Putin Russian state and say to them, "Look, guys, we will make sure that you get paid to denuclearize as well as depetro," that would that would be very cool because that is a thorn in everybody's side. People look away from the nuclear problem as if we have solved it, and we have and, not solved it. And when it comes up, like when when uh, Putin starts, you know, uh, brandishing, you know, it as a threat, it, it, it seems like it it comes back into the public consciousness to the degree that it's like one of these things that just feeds the overall dread and a lot of people's uh, fear of the future. Um, that it definitely has that effect on me. <laughs> Yeah, when, yeah, when yeah. I hear about that. Yeah, but I think in terms of real politics, if we're going to ask any nation to give up all of their nukes, particularly since Ukraine agreed at the breakup of the Soviet Union to give up its nukes and give them back over to Russia for decommissioning, well, that looks like a terrible mistake now. And Russia, nor any other nuclear power, will never give up all their nukes because it's the ultimate deterrent. Um, but uh, to have far fewer of them around, yeah. the U.S. needs to lead the way on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, so what if uh, let's let's assume that we don't succeed in keeping it, uh, the uh, temperature below 1.5 or even 2 degrees Celsius rise um, and we have to resort to extremes like uh, geoengineering. Uh, yeah. I've mean, uh, been hearing about this uh, startup that wants to uh, send up balloons and release uh, particulates into the atmosphere to, uh, to to cut down on how much uh, uh, insulation we get. And I'm just uh, wondering what your take is on that. On uh, well, whether that's it seems like you know there's there's the part of me says you know at least somebody's thinking about a way to do it if we absolutely have to do it but it doesn't seem like the right way to do it you know well that way in particular is simply a scam that's a stunt that's an internet joke that's like that uh, mars one project and and just as uh impossible the putting a gram of um, sulfur dioxide up in the 
and even up into the stratosphere when you actually need gigatons or or at least megatons of sulfur dioxide up there is just a joke and it was a way of getting attention on the internet maybe get some people to spend some send some money their way and then they could disappear into the night i think that happened with mars one um so there's an ongoing discussion much more serious than that about solar radiation management and this has been discussed everywhere by scientific groups by universities by ngos by government and by the un um if we're okay we're gonna probably overshoot the 1.5 c and maybe even the two degrees and then it gets really dangerous that we might break some planetary boundaries that will cause a runaway hothouse effect that we cannot claw back from no matter what we do. Even if all human civilization was suddenly devoted to clawing back, if we go too far in, say, releasing the CO2 and methane out of the tundra of the North, or um, the planetary boundaries are very well defined by a paper from 2009 in Nature magazine by Johan Rockstrom and Will Steffen and others, um, we can't break those planetary boundaries. Those are hard limits after beyond which civilization crashes and you have a mass extinction I mean, humans would probably survive it in tiny numbers because we're so resourceful but it would be a wreckage of civilization as we know it for sure so can't go there what what this implies and and also we're we're stupidly still emitting way more carbon than we ought to be and we aren't transitioning as fast as we sh we are getting a lot faster because this emergency is being more and more clarified in our faces so um, nevertheless, we're going to have to suck a lot of CO2 out of the atmosphere going forward, a lot. And that'll be uh, forests. It'll be regenerative agriculture back into the soil. It might be kelp beds. It might be biochar. It might be mechanical vacuum cleaners sucking it down and making gigantic tubes of, uh, of dry ice that need to be injected into the under the surface of the ground somewhere, either as a gas or as a solid or the bottom of the ocean in front of tectonic plates. All the methodologies are straightforward and worked out and they all add up together to a pretty good ability of humans to suck CO2 down and we're gonna have to do it because we're gonna have too much up there when we level off. In the meantime, what if you get heat waves that are killing millions like at the beginning of the Ministry for the Future, my right. Well, there, solar radiation management, we know because of Pinatubo, you can cool the planet by a degree or two centigrade for about five years with a, a pinatubo's worth of um, sulfur dioxide. The sunlight bounces off, maybe, I think it's something like 1% of the incoming sunlight, and it doesn't turn sky white. That was a publisher's title for Elizabeth Colbert's book. Uh, it makes sunsets a little redder, as we noticed after pinatubo, but the visual effects are small. The solar radiation management which is a a way of trying to talk about it without again like special drawing rights it let's can we describe it so vaguely that people aren't scared the moment they hear of it mm -hmm. like we're going to bounce some sunlight away from earth yikes you know th that sounds like a recipe for disaster but we might have to do it then what's interesting and what i'm part of in in various ways because of ministry for the future is governance issues who decides how do they decide and how do they convince everybody else that it's okay to do it and then who does it well now who does it is easy really you um balloons yes but better to have simply high altitude jets out of a modern air force we uh, modern jets dump stuff all the time in the sky jet fuel typically but they could dump 
uh, sulfur dioxide loads up there. I described it at the beginning of Ministry for the Future, and there are other ways to do it. It's not technically complicated, but how do we decide yeah. to make sure that it, you know, it isn't just a few people in the rest of the world going, oh my God, we've entered dystopia now. It's sure to go wrong, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, uh, what well, about the, uh, yeah. the solar shade concept? Is that it is it well feasible is an interesting word um you could in fact go out to lagrange point and throw a uh, a structure up there to as a shield um and you could also kind of make it venetian blinds open it and close it control things very expensive and technically difficult compared to just tossing some dust in the air and indeed, sulfur dioxide is not the only thing you could use to be the dust. It could be literally dust. That's not so good. It could be um, essentially limestone, chalk, uh, which is already in the atmosphere. People keep coming back to sulfur dioxide because it falls to the earth without darkening the snow and ice, uh, if I understand it right. For sure, that's being discussed, too. Absolutely. Uh, what, what to do and how to do it. A little bit of... Um, deflection of sunlight would cool the planet. You would want to be able to stop. There's a common perception that if you started doing this, you'd have to stick with it. We wouldn't have solved other problems. We would keep burning fossil fuels um, as if we were safe and we wouldn't be safe. And then if you ever stopped, you'd be cooked instantly. All these are false problems. Mm -hmm. If you did it once, five years later, it would be undone. You'd be able to look at it as an experiment and see whether mm -hmm. it helped or not. And it's sort of a, in, in case of emergency, break glass. And right now they're trying to set up the rules of when do we break glass. It's right. it's more the, the the governance issues than it is the technical issues at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, speaking Very of interesting. Gover governance yeah. issues, that uh, there was another thing with a guy, uh, like some individual guy that just had came up with a plan to to uh, go out and spread iron iron filings in the. Uh, uh, yep. Off Alaska to, to because to, yep. and he had a theory that it would improve the the bring back the salmon and it was remarkably successful for for his the level of effort that he put in uh, from what I read but they, it just caused a storm of controversy and blowback for yep. him, you know because he, yep. he you know he, it was a rogue effort and you know what if this was used as yep. a weapon or whatever. Well, exactly. And that one, I got to say, was um, um, uh, the oceans are sick. And to mess with the oceans when they're already sick it feels to me more dangerous. But on the other hand, recently I was talking with Sir David King, who was environmental minister of England for Tony Blair. And now he's head of a, a climate change um, institute at a, a Cambridge University in England. And he said to me, oh, there's some very cool things we could do in the ocean that would be safe and interesting. And one of them, we we killed off 95% of the whales. And so humans did that. And they wrecked a system that was working very well for removing carbon from the atmosphere and putting it to the ocean floor. Whales eat low and they poop high in the water table, he said. So... Um, he said, what we need to do is make artificial whale poop. So it wasn't iron filings. It's something that was in the oceans until we killed all the whales, and now it's gone. And if we brought it back, we would help the things that used to eat that. Then they die and go to the bottom as carbon. The whales are rebounding as we don't kill them. 
and they would have more things to eat if they're um, art if we artificially prime the pump by creating gigantic uh, oil tankers worth of artificially concocted whale poop, we could then dump that in the oceans. And it's a natural thing that was always in the oceans until we took it out of the oceans. Right. Hilarious and yet interesting. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, oh, I have to ask you about this. Um, I had Robert Zubrin, president of the Mars Society, uh, on the podcast uh, a couple of months ago. And um, I asked him uh, about you, uh, because I knew you used to know uh, each other well when I first met you. Um, and um, I believe you were on the board of the Mars Society or something, weren't you? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, I asked him about your, what you've been writing recently in ministry and things like that, and and this, you know, how you've sort of sort of taken a turn away from advocating human settlement of Mars in favor of focusing on our home planet, the no planet B approach. And mm -hmm. his response was, he doesn't agree with what he calls limits to growth and finds it dangerously Malthusian. And to to me, that seemed a little dogmatic and not particularly, you know, kind of lacking in nuance, but I wonder how you would respond to that. Well, there are limits to growth. Uh, that's just physical reality. The, now, what the human carry capacity of the Earth is, uh, we don't know because it depends what kind of human life on Earth, since it's variable how many calories we take in. We aren't like deer. And so I would not arbitrarily set any number of humans as being the Earth's so-called carrying capacity long term. The more people they are, the more strain there is on the biosphere, unless the tech is really clean. So I am not an advocate of degrowth. I'm an advocate of green growth, of smart growth. I think that um, a rise in sophistication of technology and more rights for women worldwide will create a decreasing human population simply by... Uh, an exercise of human freedom. You see this in all the Western democracies that uh, Bob Zubin is so proud of, and I am too. And what happens is that women choose to have fewer children than the replacement rate, and slowly but surely our pressure on the Earth's biosphere will be reduced by a combination of a, of a naturally shrinking population, one good thing, an increase of human rights, another good thing, and an increase in clean technology, a third good thing. So I don't think we, I mean, he's attacking me as a straw man about principles that I don't actually back. That's um, kind of what I feel too about the, the Malthusian uh, uh, label. It, it seems like it's like, it, it's a one size fits all attack. Like if you're, if you're, if you're not supporting complete uh, freedom to grow your, your Malthusian, you know, there has to be well, a middle, Malthus, middle ground somewhere. Malthus made one point that is uh, incontrovertible and needs to be attended to, that um, a growth of food was arithmetical while growth of humans was geometrical and we were going to be in trouble there with starvation. That's talking about his moment. Nobody's a Malthusian now except as a straw man for other people to attack. If you wanted to get into a detailed talk on it, I believe I could defend my positions with perfect um, um, rhetorical uh, competency, and I would call out straw man uh, arguments as being the kind of um, debater's tricks that they are. 
Um, what's more important, though, is that Mars, where we're for sure it'd be absolutely great to have a scientific station like South Pole, like McMurdo. I'm still in totally in favor of that. I'm a favor of the Mars project. The idea that Mars is a second home, that it's a wild west, a new frontier, that we go there and we uh, in, uh, inspire human civilization with a new burst of freedom and technology, all that is just a story. And there's a lot of nonsense in it. Mars is not the new world. You can't get there. So you can get there, but it's the 50% chance that you'll land safely. And once you manage that, you're on a, uh, a rock that's either dead or alive. And either way, you've got problems. Um, it's harder than I thought it was when I wrote the Mars Trilogy. Zubrin is not taking this on. The perchlorates in the soil, what yeah. cosmic rays do to brains. These are things that he's dodged to stay in 1985 when he formed his ideas. And he's pretending that we haven't learned stuff that makes the project much more dangerous and harder than it was. So scientific station, absolutely. Second Earth for a bur new burst of American-style 1776 freedom? No way. That's a fantasy. And it and needs to be called out as such. Because we have problems. We have a biosphere emergency here that needs to be solved. Yeah. And, and during this emergency, Mars is very close to irrelevant. So, I mean, Zubrin isn't important in this regard compared to Elon Musk, who has um, got much more power and sway over the minds of the young. And when he talks about Mars as a escape hatch or as a don't keep all your eggs in one basket, then it gets quite dangerous. Yeah, I wondered what you thought of that, too, because uh, I, I find myself drawn to I'm really excited by watching Starship launches and things like that great technology mega technology work is just you know blows my mind and it's fun to watch um and i i love the idea of being able to travel to mars uh much more cheaply and get things into orbit for science for like, to be able to put huge telescopes into orbit a lot cheaper and things like that um yeah so yeah i, I, I love spacex I, I, yeah, I wish he wasn't talking about it in those terms of like an escape hatch. Um, it, that seems ridiculous to me. It seems that, you know, I, I'm coming around to thinking of, of the long emergency that we're facing right here with the climate as the priority. And I think that there's a lot of tendency to uh, be impatient about getting into space and thinking like, if we don't do it now, we'll never do it. Uh, well, um, no, well, that's um, if we it, that that notion that there's a window of opportunity and that, oh, my God, we might have a, a dark ages that last for um, 500 years and that going to space was ever at all important compared to the crash of civilization. It's a ridiculous reversal of values. I mean, I'm all I, I like space programs. I, space science is an earth science that NASA slogan is very powerful because it's true and we're going to be on the moon again in about five or ten years and as i say putting a humans on mars would be exciting and be inspiring it's just not anything important compared to the uh severe importance of making sure we don't crash those planetary boundaries that's the number one uh focus of human civilization right now and at that point um mars is a is a, a dangerous distraction I, I mean, I say this as author of trilogy, which I think is still a good novel, but it's not a good plan. Um, it was written and finished in 1995. So I had another question that came up 
that comes out of one another of your essays, the one on uh, utopia and dystopia, and going back to our thinking of what we were talking about with ChatGPT. Uh, there was a recent story that came out in the New York Times about one of their journalists that engaged with uh, a new, the new Bing uh, AI search engine uh, that is is part based on ChatGPT somehow. And he got into a really interesting back and forth uh, where uh, he eventually uh, managed to kind of goad it into writing you know, or voicing its inner thoughts about uh, you know, hacking nuclear codes and selling them to terrorists or something like that. Uh, and various things also yeah. said it was in love with him and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, you know, a lot of people freaked out at that. The journalists freaked out at that. And it, it sounded very scary and like spooky and, you know, is this thing alive and all that stuff. And, you know, when you think about how it works, I think I know enough about how it works, although I haven't really played with it yet. I'm kind of afraid to, honestly. Uh, but the, the, uh, my son plays with it. Uh, and uh, maybe, the, maybe the young find it easier to engage with it. But the, uh, the the thing is it seems obvious that it's like a, a really just mimicking humans uh you know in in a predictive text kind of way uh like yeah. you know just a, a really advanced form of predictive text where it's like putting together phraseology like based on what you what it's prompted like you know kind of guessing what it wants you to produce what it you know what you want it to produce and so it, what Jeremy said was interesting was um, it, it's not surprising that it would be really good at creating a dystopic kind of view of what AI does because it's such a, a common trope in all the literature and all the online just discourse and everything that people talk about. So, you know, if it's going to, it should be really talented at that. It should be really good at coming up with like really scary sounding. I'm 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 really alive and I'm going to take over the world kind of feeling. And so it's not yeah. surprising that people get that out of it and get spooked and yeah, think it's it's a, you know it's a scary kind of thing. Uh, and uh, it, but what he said was also that you know there's a lot more of this dystopia kind of stuff than there is utopian things out there. Uh, for it to draw That's for on, sure. right? So yep. have we yep. kind of unwittingly already, you know, in our culture prompted AI to be dystopic because that's what it, it knows, right, from us, you know, that, that sense. Yeah. And, and it, Absolutely. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's almost Shakespeare. It, to hold a mirror up to nature, the AI is programmed very um, simply and basically at this point it could get more sophisticated later, but right now it's um, going into a vast database of human stories and sentences that are already out there. Once it gets a prompt, it goes into that a file and is just doing the simplest kind of um, uh, troll, trolling through the data to find similar sounding things. And so, of course, yes, it's finding a thousand dystopias for any utopia. I would reckon the ratio at approximately a thousand to one, maybe a hundred to one, but I don't know because I write utopian fiction and see it so seldomly. 
I think it might be true that it's a thousand to one. And uh, the AI responses, when you ask them, well, tell us a story about what you want and what you're going to do, then the AI goes out and looks at uh, artificial intelligence in essays, in warning um, editorials, in science fiction stories, and says, well, I want to take over the world and blow it up. I mean, that's what it's been trained to want. It doesn't want it. It's not guessing. It's mm -hmm. merely doing um, a file a search and compiling very quickly out of the evidence a, a, a weird amalgamation. It's not quite summarization. It's not thinking at that level, um, although it is impressive the way it comes up with a, a gooey amalgam of all the other data that it's got that roughly approximates the, the lowest common denominator or the averaging of all the other uh, sentences that it's seen. I, I am impressed. I also want to point out that the Turing test is a very low bar. It always has been. We're, we're fooled even already by our talking computers into thinking that they're thinking and that they're human a little bit, even when we know better. But a really good one is going to come along soon. Uh, next iteration of these, they'll pass the Turing test for a while and then they'll give themselves away, presumably. I, I don't know. That's I've been interested in that for years. I've been writing science fiction stories about it. And yet my AIs have always been interesting, quirky characters. And then you have to think, wait, could a computer think that up? They're almost always named Pauline. You, we've spoke before about my Franks. All of my pseudo-sentient uh, computers are named Pauline, and um, which is a character in one of Robert Browning's poems, a, a mm. guiding spirit kind of thing. Um, well, you know, there's hardly any. You, you need... You uh, was, was the Aurora ship supposed to be named Pauline originally? Well, someone... Yes, it was a kind of no, a gesture yeah. to my own habits, but then uh -huh. I didn't want to... I didn't want to um, singularize it. I decided it was best that it thought of itself as the ship because it is the ship, the body of the ship, the mind of the ship, etc. Mm -hmm. So Pauline was just a, Debbie says one night, I'll call you Pauline, but she never does again. Something like that, just as a, yeah. a kind of gesture for my content reader to look for signs like that and enjoy jokes like that. Um, but as to these computers, uh, these AIs, as they get better and better, they will be able to sound more and more like us, but they will make odd mistakes because they're repeating to us our own stories that have been um, amalgamated into one that is a least common denominator type, but it can go off the rails. That computer that suddenly started to say, well, you don't love your wife, you love me and I love you. That is a story out of Lester Del Rey and Isaac Asimov. This is a 1940s computer story where the robot, the robot wife, uh, uh, very smart. Yes, that's right. Oh, I remember. Yeah, yeah. and the AI is thinking, yeah, so the AI is going down a rabbit hole of one potential strand of stories, sees a lot more like it, and creates it itself. Same with the nuclear codes given to a terrorist. That must be one of the more common stories mm -hmm. uh, in the world that it saw, and it has no judgment. It's only a mirror up to nature. nature. It's showing us what we think in a rather degraded and simplistic form. And when it goes down these rabbit holes, it's not shocking, it's it's predictable. Um, I was gonna say, Ian Banks is talking computers in his um, culture series. Um, my computers, 
Charlie Strauss, Charles Strauss's computers uh, occasionally. The British science fiction writers are much more positive about this, and they're somewhat because of banks. Ken McLeod, uh, very interesting computer minds. Um, uh, Paul McCauley, it goes on and on. Uh, in uh, Ian McDonald, these are um, British science fiction writers who have a much broader sense of the interesting possibilities of AI thinking. Mm-hmm. And so I would suppose that if you ha- if you told chat GPT, make your answers entirely based on Interzone magazine and don't include analog Asimov's or FNSF, you might get a different set of responses out of a sort of national bias of British SF versus uh, American SF. It would be a, an experiment to run, and I bet people will run it someday. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd actually want to do the opposite and use the, as much Asimov as I could. <laughs> yeah. uh, if uh, getting back to that uh, ratio you were discussing of dystopia to utopia, yeah. um, yep. do you see that as like a problem? Do we need to like push that ratio smaller? Uh, uh, is or is this not? Uh, I I guess what I'm concerned about is you know what. All the all the horrible things that you hear about on the internet now, and you you know a lot of them are are really happening, like Ukraine and and pandemics and Turkey earthquakes and things like that. There's this growing sense of dread in the in a lot of people's minds, and it, this is it, you know not it it seems like that ratio is would be likely to grow rather than shrink, you know, to get more dystopic. Uh, well, and, but this is yes. Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. It, it, the idea of um, the aspiring to a, a positive future, manifesting a, a positive future, you know, it is in deep trouble if that's what you know the way it works. If we if we imagine we're heading for catastrophe and everybody's like just giving up and like waiting for it to come. Versus uh, like imagining the possibility of uh, solving these problems and you know a glorious solar punk future, you know that that's uh, uh, it, it, we seem to be going the wrong direction for that. And, and what can well, we do to change that? Well, it's dialectical, and the art reflects the society that's creating it. Um, there's a sense of dread. There's a sense of anxiety and angst and helplessness. Um, that leads to hopelessness, and this is somewhat of the 80s. Um, cyberpunk is a reaction to um, Reagan getting elected. The the Reagan-Thatcher counter-revolution, the rise of neoliberalism, the, the thrashing of, of government power and social security by the market and by the rich, this was registered by dystopian stories that said, give up, film noir, find your corner on the mean streets and try to survive this kind of 1947 view of reality um, as a retreat from the utopian possibilities of the 60s, where everything was blowing up and history could have gone well, and there was this flash of utopian energy that uh, got crushed by the Reagan-Thatcher counter-revolution, and then science fiction follows. So to a certain extent, your fiction follows the society rather than leads it, but it is dialectical because if you create a, a feedback mechanism where all the stories about the future are dire, then you are concluding 
though the future is going to be dire because that's what everybody says. So this is one thing that's been tagged as instrumental reason or capitalist realism. This idea that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. That capitalism is somehow massively entrenched, even though it's falling apart right in front of our eyes. And so that double, double feeling that we got nothing but capitalist reality and we can't get out of it. And it's tearing the world apart and, and creating massive inequality. Therefore, we are doomed. The syllogism is wrong because the system of capitalism is just a system of laws and we change our laws all the time. And there are social democracies, there are there was the New Deal, there are social safety nets. There are ways in which the world is working really well. Like you fly to India, you turn on your cell phone, it works and you can call back home. Well, this is a not a flatly technological achievement, it's a social achievement. It is uh, a utopian achievement. But we regard it as just casual background of the technology. And indeed, technologies can be used. You can have it seized, and you. And then it's a surveillance state. Then it's the big five you know, internet companies that are uh, shoving advertising in your face all the time, and you feel helpless to resist it. And yet you can just walk outdoors and turn your screen off and suddenly you're free of all that crap. So um, the sense of entrapment is um, semi-concocted by the stories that we tell each other about what's possible in the future. So you, we need many more utopias. We need solar punk. We need hope punk. They have chosen stupid names. Punk is exactly the mark of disaffection from civil society, from real work, of saying, I give up, I check out, I'm going to get stoned and play bad music to each other. Mm -hmm. So when you say hope punk, it comes from cyberpunk. Really, Gardner Dozois did us no favor there, although he caught something real. But so what I say to these youngsters doing solar punk is change your name. You should be calling yourself utopian science fiction. You should be calling yourself um, solar hopeful fiction. This punk adjective is a marketing device out of older science fiction and should be dead as a doornail. Well, they say, oh, Grandpa Stan, you know, he's 70. He was, you know, he is so um, ancient. Uh, and we're stuck with it anyway because they are stuck in a marketing system they didn't invent that they're trying to succeed in. So I give them shit about it, but I also give them full credit for trying to write utopian fiction mm -hmm. when the marketplace usually says, but isn't that going to be boring? Oh, my gosh, if people solve their problems, isn't that boring? And isn't it more interesting when things blow up and everybody's crawling around trying to dodge zombies? That's more interesting. Well, no, the, you know, people are still reading the dispossessed. People are not reading whatever was dystopian in 1974 when she published The Dispossessed. There's um, um, there's something more interesting about huge problems getting solved by heroic efforts than tiny problems being failed at by tiny characters. So I, right. I, I'll i say, I'll speak for utopian fiction with the full-throated uh, um, attack mode, a kind of angry optimism saying, damn it, um, it's stupid to do dystopia at this point. You are a fool to do it. You ought to gain some courage. Uh, stick your courage to, to the... Uh, that can't be what Hamlet says. Um, to the sticking place. Tack your courage to the sticking place. Um, and and um, do something bold. 
and which is to tell a story of problems being solved. We need those stories. They will mm -hmm. help people mentally to cope with all the problems we have. This uh, takes me back to uh, an occasion 20 years ago uh, where you and I attended a dinner that James Cameron host, uh, uh, was at. Uh, and I asked a, a question of him in uh, when he was presenting his uh, his uh, he was talking about doing a movie about Mars, I think, at, at the time. Yes. Right. And I said, uh, is this going to be like, you know, the typical Mars movie where, you know, everything blows up and they're in big trouble? Are you going to like have things like actually work for once? And he mm. he smacked me down so well. And like he just said, oh, no, this is going to be. Uh, in my movie, everything is going to go exactly right, and it's going to completely bomb at the box office. And I felt like <laughs> I, I felt like a tiny, tiny. Yeah, I wanted to crawl into a hole. And, and you know, I've always <laughs> thought that was such a dumb question. And then, yeah, you know, lately I've been thinking back, and maybe that wasn't such a dumb question. Uh, you know, your, if, yeah, no, nor yeah. was his answer completely a put down either. He was pointing out the problem that you need yeah. drama and yeah. conflict. And so, but here's what happened with Cameron. I mean, at that point, he had the option on Red Mars. And the very first time we met, which was at an earlier Mars Society meeting in Boulder, Colorado, thanks to Bob Zubrin, who did great things with all that stuff. I was talking with Cameron about this, and he said, oh, gosh, you know, very sorry about that option that we took on Red Mars. Um, I'm never going to make Red Mars, and I'm going to give you that option right back um, because I have my own Mars story to tell, and my people optioned Red Mars while I was finishing Titanic, and I never really noticed. Wonderful novel, not my story. I like to write my own stories, and he was completely upfront and straightforward. I was disappointed, but also uh, admiring his honesty and indeed, he gave the option back. And he also told me as I left you, um, as, as I left, he said, your, my lawyers kicked ass on your lawyers. And I could have kept Red Mars forever for a dime because the contract was so against you. But I'm waiving all that. I'm giving you the book back anyway. But you should check into your lawyers. I went back to my literary agent. And I told him that story. He looked into it, fired his Hollywood contacts, started his own Hollywood agency himself so he could control what was going on out there so cameron was in fact a huge help not just to me but to my literary agent and the guy he hired in hollywood who is still my media agent now um and i like cameron's quick wit his good nature his um uh knowledge of science fiction both literary and movie was comprehensive and here's what i think happened was his mars story as he conceived it at the time turned into avatar uh, he decided he yeah. needed he needed a planet more interesting than Mars. The more he looked at it, the more he thought, I'd rather have a jungle planet. Let's go there instead, etc. And so mm -hmm. he never will do a Mars story because when he described the plot of his Mars story to me, it was really the abyss uh, mm -hmm. done over again. As he described plot points, I realized that he was still irritated that the abyss had not blown the world away. And he had a story to tell there that the studio had somewhat screwed up and he was going to go again because he's a very um, headstrong artist. So I'm I'm put, I'm put saying it like I feel it. I, I like James Cameron. I like his movies. Um, I think he's been a force for good. And, you know, the Avatar movies are kind of utopian. Like 
biospheres are beautiful. Mm -hmm. Don't ruin them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's his message. Yeah. Well, so it, he it, has succeeded. It, it, the, the more I think about the the Mars trilogy and um, yeah, the my my romanticism about it and my you know dearly wanting it to be true, uh, you know, someday, but not in my lifetime, obviously. Um, I am thinking it would be great to to turn that trilogy into like a, a series or something. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the 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 latest. The, the, I just heard about them making another version of the Lord of the Rings, and thinking, come on, mm -hmm. like there's other stories out there. Uh, but if you well, could, if you could take the Mars trilogy but set it several hundred years in the future after we had gotten through the long emergency, and you know set that yeah. as kind of an aspiration for humanity if we can figure these yeah. things out and you know solve these immediate problems and stabilize the situation on earth then we can do these grand adventures uh that it's probably not the right time to do now or well know, i like that very much I want that myself. I think that I'm not ready to regard the Mars Trilogy as fantasy or as category error. I think you don't even have to go several hundred years out. If we solve our problems, the solving is going to be abrupt in a historical scale because the emergency is still present. If we solve it, the next 30 years are crucial. And if we solve the next 30 years as best we can, the 100 years after that is going to be really remarkable. We're going to get into balance with the biosphere, healthy biosphere, equality amongst humans. Mars sits there as a potential garden. And I still think terraforming, like I compressed it in order to get into the lifetime of my very long-lived main characters. So there's a literary device. Say it takes 10,000 years um, instead of 200 years, big deal. Um, it's still worth doing. It would be a grand project. So I do not want to renounce the terraformation of Mars as a human project. It's just that it is off the table unless we've solved Earth first. And right. then it becomes super interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I like we it. have to yeah. take a long view. And we, ha we have to think beyond our own lifetimes, you know, and beyond the lifetimes well, of our children. Yeah. Right? Um, yes. Right. At least to consider the lifetimes of our children would be a step in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, so we didn't talk about your latest book, uh, High Sierra. Well, one of the reasons I haven't talked about it is I haven't read it yet, and I have started it, and uh, um, I can't wait. Uh, I was delighted, but that there are actually maps in it, uh, which are oh yeah. Uh, I, I love books with good maps, and they are good maps. And I'm also I have geology background, so I love that there's a lot of geology discussed in it, uh, and you know I've. I also love the High Sierra, so it's it's going to change the way I look at things when I get up there again. But well, um, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, what what prompted you to write this? Uh, I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but uh, can you do you want to talk about your uh, your unique style of uh, doing backpacking? Uh, not like uh, everybody who takes a hundred pounds on their on their back. Well, it isn't unique, but I am one of those who they call themselves ultralight. And certainly the people who are hiking the Pacific Crest Trail and trying to go from Mexico to Canada in a single season, which entails like a marathon a day, every day for four months of walking up and down on, on uh, steep trails. 
often. So that's a tough assignment. And there, ounces matter, grams matter, and a whole industry has sprung up, or little cottage industries, to serve that crowd. And as a casual backpacker, getting older, um, and also uh, my mountain guru friend was a leader in this movement way ahead of um, the rest of the pack and that he started working on these issues in the 80s. Well, Ray Jardine was an early pioneer that my friend Terry read and studied and then started making our gear for us. So I've been light from for decades and ultralight recently with these new materials and new companies making stuff that is better than ever at lighter than ever. So the combination is quite glorious as you age out and, and um, to have a backpack go from something like 40 pounds in our youth to something like 15 pounds in our old age is a blessing indeed. So yeah, I do the ultralight thing. I, I love the gear. I have a chapter in the book, uh, Gear Talk, and I tried to reduce that because you can become such a maniac for Gear Talk. It could take over many more pages than it really deserves in the larger um, um, scheme of things. And, and also always thinking of the general reader. If somebody were picking up this book that never backpacked, would they still find it interesting? So mm -hmm. I, I tried to keep that reader in mind, as well as the people who already know everything that's in the book anyway. So there was a kind of an audience problem with the High Sierra, but uh, it's partly memoir. I tell my story to the extent that I want to. I won't tell any more than that because I don't have anything else interesting to say. But I, I've had some Sierra adventures and good friends up there and good good times. And then, like you said, some geology, just enough to try to explain why the Sierras are so great compared to even the other mountain ranges that I've seen. And a little bit of history. And, the, and like I say at the start of the book, some people... They go up in the Sierras when they're young. They fall in love with the place. They tweak their lives to go back up as often as they can. Some of them become rangers or whatever. And others just do everything they can in the lowlands to make sure they've carved a whole lot of Sierra time out. And so I wrote about several of those characters through from, from say, the 1860s, including John Muir for sure, but also Mary Austin and the Sierra Club crowd and some famous um, people who are Sierra people, I tell their stories. So it's got a miscellaneous character, like an anthology of different genres that much resembles the Ministry for the Future, my most recent novel. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably going to use that format again for a similar nonfiction book about Antarctica, where I'll tell about my Antarctic adventures and the geology and the glaciology and uh, can we indeed stop the glaciers from sliding into the sea and the worst journey in the world, a little history, the famous characters. Right. So the format is serving me well for, for um, kind of spreading out and um, creating a structure for me to put a whole bunch of different elements into a story without a whole lot of time spent on transitions. I just make a chapter break, start up a new topic, and it's mm -hmm. working pretty well. Uh, do you get like philosophical as you often do up in the Highland High Sierra or when you're camping and you just have time sitting around a, uh, a mountain lake and ponder uh, the meaning of life? Well, this was probably more a feature of when we were young than when we were when we get older. There's um, a constant source of uh, wonder and awe in seeing the night skies from 11,000 feet above sea level. Uh, and then lying out there at night, 
sleeping without a tent, looking up at the stars and at the Milky Way and at the meteor showers. Um, it is mind-boggling and beautiful and sublime, and it is a kind of a, it induces a kind of a set of a, what I would call religious feelings. But we don't actually talk about it a whole lot. Right, we're cold, it's we're the tired. kind of stuff you can't talk about. It's, you know, right. it's ineffable. We made it, we tried when we were young, but it was yeah. always the same. It always comes thing. out oh as God. like a stoner conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I think there I could talk with you for several hours. I had lots of things in mind, but um, um, we're running out of time. So I'm just very okay. thankful that uh, we had the time to do this. It took us a few, a few, uh, uh, got it, got it, had to cross a few hurdles to make a few it storms. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, so yeah. Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, my pleasure, Joel. And I want to say it's been a pleasure for this whole, whole we're coming up on like 25 years of knowing each other through the Mars uh, Society and all of its projects. And uh, it's been a pleasure all along. So I'm glad you're doing this uh, podcast and gave us a chance to talk again. So we'll do it again. Well, what can I say? Dream guest. And he certainly didn't disappoint. This is a good time to relay a little anecdote of the early days of getting to know Kim Stanley Robinson, a little over two decades ago. We talked a little about that James Cameron dinner fundraiser for the Mars Society in the spring of 2001. As the event coordinator, I had a free ticket, which was a big deal as the price of admission for the dinner was $500. I also was given a second ticket to bring a guest of my choosing. The romantics would probably say I should have brought my wife but she really wasn't into science fiction or Mars. She saw it as my thing. So I invited Kim Stanley Robinson, and he accepted. I got to sit next to my favorite living sci-fi writer, along with Frank Drake of the famous Drake Equation, and his wife, and a couple of other notable figures in the Mars movement. That's also the occasion I mentioned earlier on the podcast that brought Elon Musk into the orbit of the Mars Society, and some considerable funding at his behest. It was an amazing night, and I was trying my hand at the time as an aspiring science journalist, writing for an e-zine called New Mars, now long defunct. I'd interviewed Chris McKay, an astrobiologist from NASA, sci-fi writer Gregory Benford, and a couple of other events, and written a few essays. I decided it would be a great feather in my cap to interview the author of the most well-known story set on a future Mars, so I asked Stan if he would let me do that, and he readily agreed. A few weeks later, I accepted an invitation to Stan's home in Davis, California, and spent several hours in his company, hearing about his new passion for ultralight backpacking, visiting his impressive home library, having lunch with him at a nearby restaurant, and basically having my mind blown by the steady stream of incredible ideas pouring out from his massive intellect. I had all the material to write a masterpiece of a profile for New Mars. My career as a journalist would be launched like a rocket to the red planet itself. Heaven. Then something weird happened. Maybe it was imposter syndrome, maybe just a sustained panic attack. I don't know, but I never wrote that article. I soon thereafter got back into software development and gave up on the dream of being a science journalist altogether. That failure to consummate the KSR interview was pivotal to the process of a reversal that affected me for the next two decades. 
This interview for Selden Crisis, however, feels like redemption. I'm not saying it's Pulitzer-worthy or whatever prize there should be for a great podcast interview. There are much better people at this than me. I'm a humble rookie at this, still trying to figure out how to do it right. But this interview will be published right here on Selden Crisis, and that feels absolutely awesome. So, what comes next? Will I return to the next chapter of Foundation? I hope so. That is still my plan, and there really aren't any big-name guests I have in mind who can top this one. I'll likely return to rereading Foundation's Edge and start scripting it out, but it still might be a little while. Please be patient while I try to get back in the groove. In the meantime, there are a lot of ideas I've had that haven't made it into written form, and I would love to share some of them with you. There may also be a KSR-related follow-up piece, because Stan gave me permission to read an excerpt from his novel, Aurora, that I think you should really enjoy. Stay tuned to SeldonCrisis.net. Get in touch with me at joel at SeldonCrisis.net or at my Twitter or Mastodon accounts linked in the show notes. I also expect there to be a lot of great links in this one due to all the excellent resources Stan shared in our conversation. If you feel like writing a review for the podcast, that is always deeply appreciated there's a handy tool right on the website to do that. And with that, I look forward to our next engagement here on Selden Crisis.